All right, it's that time again for another episode of the Lifters League podcast, the Strength and Muscle Science podcast. I'm Ben Ashmole. Um, as ever, I'm here with elite powerlifting and strength coach Gus Cook. How are you doing, Gus? Good. Good day. Good day to be alive. <laughs> it's raining outside. It's pretty shit, but... Uh, um, so today we got uh, my good friend, Fuzzy. Actually, what's, what's your Try name? Try and say Phil? my real name. <laughs> right. I, I, so, <laughs> so I was looking as your name came came up on the screen thinking, pre-going through it in my head, like, how am I going to get that I out? don't think I've ever said it. It's, uh, it's, uh, that's why people call me Fuzzy. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you pronounce it? My, my name is, well, the proper pronunciation is Faraz. Most people call me Faraz. As yep. long as it's not Faraz, like a Shiraz, because <laughs> that makes me want to stab myself in the ears. Right. But yeah, uh, Fuzzy's fine. And, I, you know, it's, it's the brand, so we got to go with it. Yeah, so he's got a gym called Fuzzy's Power Gym. And now Fuzzy's Ironworks, which is his... Yes, uh, yes, Fuzzy's Ironworks. Should I do a shameless plug? Fuck, that, that T-shirt's awesome. Is that... Is that like a so, show dog with it? Yeah, yeah. well, that's our, um, so it was a bit of a tribute. To, so I got the idea as I, I, was, I was experimenting with a bit of sort of West Side conjugate training. Yeah, yeah. And you know how it is with those guys, like really grainy black and white photos, super hardcore. And uh, Louis Simmons has the dog. And so yeah. we have a little dog, Gondo, who's like a psychotic <laughs> multi-shih tzu. So we did a multi-shih tzu and instead of, uh, he's got 4.4 pound plates because he can't do the 44 pound plates. <laughs> right. So Anyway, it was <laughs> Louis. Louis got a pit bull, right? That's yeah. his. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. And and Gondo would take him. So, um, so yeah, <laughs> so yeah. So, um, I guess I'll. Do you guys want me to do a bit of an introduction? Yeah, let's introduce yourself. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. So, my name is Faraz Lashkar, Fuzzy's Power Gym, and uh, recently uh, Fuzzy's Ironworks. I've started both those business businesses with my lovely wife Samara. The gym opened in, at the end of 2013, um, and as far as I'm aware, it is the first strength gym in Adelaide or in South Australia. So we sort of wow. really, really kicked off the scene. And now, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of gyms, probably over half a dozen gyms in the state of South Australia. But, you know, it was sort of us who kicked it off. And funnily enough, I think pretty much everyone who's someone in powerlifting in Adelaide started, you know, they started with us. Yeah. So um, so it's something we're really proud of. I'm, you know, I love this state. I love Adelaide. I, I you know, it's my home. I, I can't express how much I love it. And that sort of then led on to during the old Rona crisis was a, like was an expansion into equipment. And I'd always wanted to do equipment, but we started with steel plates because that's what everyone wanted to do. Yep. Uh, you know, everyone wanted, needed. So we started with steel plates and recently we've just sort of launched our sort of flagship product, which is um, the Fuzzy's Power Rack, which is, you know, basically my answer to every frustration I've ever had with um, power rack buying, like, you know, in terms of weird sizings, weird spacings, lack of expandability. So yeah. I was just like, all right, I'm going to do it how we want it and do it at, I'm going to match, the goal is to match imported prices. So no one's got an excuse not to buy 100% Australian uh, made. Interesting. So power racks are one of those things that everybody, nobody, everybody's trying to find the perfect power rack. It's a bit like um, backpacks and rucksacks, mm -hmm. right? Like everybody's looking for that, especially as um, um, my industry is filmmaking, right? So I'm always trying to find yeah. a backpack that'll hold the laptop, all the cables, camera, lenses, this, 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 and this. And there's not, you, you, it's like an eternal quest, right? And a power rack's exactly the same, isn't it? Everyone has a personal preference. I've never come across yes. a power rack I like. <laughs> it's just, yeah. especially the bigger you get, you just you just have a hard time smacking the plates to the side. Freaking can't grab the bar where you want to grab it. That's not a problem so I share. Funny, 
funny you should say that. So I made sure that, so our rack from end to end was 1200. And it was specifically so that when you're using a rogue uh, power or any like Elico sort of thin collared bar, yep. you don't smack and you have a little bit of a hand for a wide grip. So, Good. you know, I spent hours and hours and hours trying to think of every aspect of what makes a good power rack. Yeah. And, you know, it's the little things like that that I think, you know, make, make the difference because a few of the bigger guys at the gym have said, oh, I can get my hands out or I'm not smacking around as I'm, as I'm walking the bar out. Yeah. Well, we'll, 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 link to, we'll link to all your stuff in the description. Please do. I'll, yeah, stop, yeah. I'll, stop, I'll stop advertising like a, no, like no, a it's good. Lebanese merchant. <laughs> you got into the game at the right time with coronavirus. I remember it was like Mad Max with people looking for strength equipment. There was a two-week period where it was literally like, if you were walking, out, if you walked down the street with a barbell, someone was going to shoot you and rob you. For yeah, it. Like, yeah, yeah, it's insane. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, we can we can table Ironworks or we can talk about Ironworks. But I mean, it's it's something I'm I'm really I'm as an I'm an immigrant, right? So yeah. I came to Australia when I was seven, and I have a very deep love of Australia. You know, I'm very grateful to be here. Mm -hmm. So to manufacture something here means a lot to me. I don't want to okay. import. I don't want to play that game. You know, Australian owned and operated. Okay, you you. You have a warehouse and you import Alibaba containers. That's not Australian. Yeah, That's, you're just a merchant. So anyway, anyway that's practically on, isn't that? That's practically all the freaking plates there is now. I've seen. I think I've seen a copy of all the, the plates in Alibaba. They they all come from the same yeah. factory in China. They just rebatch them. They all look yes. exactly the same. <laughs> They're all the same. Just just replace um, the rogue with whatever you like. You know. Well, even the calibrated market, the calibrated steel market, is now. You know, it's it's like. You know that meme where it's just like a corporate would like you to find the difference between these two pictures. Well, just do that with like do that with the rogue plate and do that with Goliath plate, and they're indistinguishable. Yeah. Same calibration plug, same font, same paint. Like it's yeah. the same factory, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Actually, how do you go about making your steel plates? That's, I was just about to ask that. So I, this oh, might be trade secrets. <laughs> trade secrets. Look, it's, there's really nothing to it, man. It's it's um, you know massive a cylinder and get it to the right size and width. So I'll, that's about as, as all as I'll let you. And then, of course, you know, good, good, quality, um, good quality paint, which is the real killer, actually, more yeah. than anything, and, and logoing. But the plates, I mean, the plates are, are relatively straightforward. There's, there's a lot of other avenues that are being prototyped and explored at the moment, but we'll, we'll sort of let everyone know once we know and once yeah. we've got those things. Um, because I, you can expect people to pay a bit more for Australian made, but you can't expect 300% more. So we yeah. have to sort of, um, we have to work through all of that, that, sort of deep um, down to the scent type stuff before we let anyone know. It's doable. Whether it's affordable is a different different game. Of course. Yeah. All right. We'll move on to the topic of the day. Yeah, let's move on to our first topic. So um, we know you've got a bit in your grill about social media. I have had recently. Yeah. And its effect on yeah. the sport. of So are you, are you powerlifting focused or are you just a general strength gym? We're, yeah, I mean, I'd say we're primarily powerlifting yeah, focused, cool. probably yeah. similar to the situation Gus had. We're certainly yeah. open to strongman and anyone else, but yeah. mostly powerlifters. Yeah. So, so what are, what are your observations on how social media has changed things? Obviously, you you opened your gym in you said 2013. So even mm. from then till now, it will have changed very massively, right? It's been very different since then. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I mean, I remember like Instagram wasn't a real big thing. You know, wasn't huge at that point. Yeah. I think. I think social media plays so, so one I don't want to be you know uh, the gruffy boomer yeah. who's complains about kids posting on social media because if you go back to like 
2005, you would find those same boomers posting across 10 different forums, you know, bodybuilding.com forums, wannabe <laughs> big forums. Pat. So they were doing the same thing. It's the same. I'm trying to put videos or uh, like things of myself out there to get adulation. If anyone remembers the rep system on on bodybuilding.com, I don't know if you guys ever went on that side, but this is going you know back 10 years. So so the, that need for that social approval, I think, has always been there. Yeah. It's just in the context of social media, it's become weaponized and it's become quite dangerous. Mm. Um, so that's sort of that's been that's been the real big changes. And I think you know over the the last seven years, um, you know, we we sort of saw that transition from I'm sharing to I'm basing self worth on right. these things, and that I think was sort of the, the critical point. When would that have happened? I would say 2015. I think 2015 was the point I went, man, this is whack. And it happened because I saw an athlete, you know, was programmed for like, I think it was like 317, right? Which on a bar would be like five reds and like a blue. And I know they put six reds because they had an image in their head of what the Instagram post would have looked like. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, a few of us are a bit guilty of that. Thing. What the, the, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we. what do we you are, feel, Gus? Yeah, I like. I mean, I'm even guilty of that myself, and then seeing seeing what people attempt um, coming off program all the time, and it's just like it seems to be these perfect round numbers, round round red plates. But yeah, I, I even do it too, even to the point where I'll, yeah, I might be uh, say you know two seventy five, and I know it's two eighty for uh, a squat to get to get you know five reds to get five reds in there. So I'll just use a plastic collar, or because yeah, it looks it looks a little cooler. Yes. Yeah. When there are set. Wasn't there something with people on YouTube repainting plates? Did what? I re- did I wait? Was that recently? Someone got apparently someone was showing footage of PBs, and someone called bullshit and said they're training plates that have been repainted. I don't know. I don't. Right, I don't know who it was, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was actually the case, right? Where they, that wouldn't surprise me. I think they were using, yeah, well, you know, they were using CrossFit plates where they're all exactly the same size, yeah. but different well, I, I think in that context, shamelessly lying, I think is, you, okay, at that point, you're just lying, right? right you know yeah, you're yeah. lying. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I think in a way that's less toxic than some of the twisted mind games we put ourselves through yeah. when we have a certain level of honor as athletes and lifters. Mm. And we're also trying to mar it with this need for sort of self-approval from other people. I know if so, like if someone's lying to me to make, you know, that's fine. I, like that is calculated, get views, get sales. Yeah. That's fine. I think where it comes into is sort of hyper-driven athletes or people who have been hyper-driven athletes like me and Gus and going through these, you know, intense desire to be one of the best. And on top of that, you add this need for other people to sort of approve of what you're doing and sort of the dick measuring contest as far as social media goes. And it can really become a sludge. It, like it can really, really become a sludge. I think, do you think it's made an impact on, on, I guess, maybe, maybe influences that some coaches have made on programming decisions? Because I'm starting to see a, a little bit of thing where it's like, it was kind of a bit of a philosophy for us that we never went super heavy. Um, we worked mm. quite submaximal for many years when we were at PTC Brisbane. And, you know, it seems to be more common now that people love to hit nearly close to super maximal for like freaking four, five, six, seven, eight weeks. Um, cause it looks freaking good. You know, they're like five weeks out and they're hitting so close to their max, if not over their max and for the next freaking two or three weeks. And it's like, it's just absolutely your, this absurdity with now, I don't know if that's driven by social media or just people's ego or I mean, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I, I definitely think people are doing um, silly programming decisions. But I also think, for instance, is there's people who stick to a good program, right? And so the content that, they're, you know, the, the videos that they're taking might not make the best content. Mm. So what ends up happening is you insert wacky pseudo spiritual bullshit <laughs> into your post. And so it's just like, like, I think I made a, you know, a Facebook status about this, you know, a couple of weeks back when it's just like, I am the iron brother, fear me. I fear no man. And it's like, man, just 655 by five and fuck off. Like, just yeah, 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 what yeah. you lived. Yeah. yeah, felt good today. Really happy. Looking forward to the meet and fuck off. But instead, it's just this constant, like, this desire to sort of put meaning into what is functionally something you do for fun with your mates. It's, yeah. it's, it's a completely optional endeavor. You're not battling iron. You're lifting, mate, you're lifting weights with your mates, you know? So it's, I think this, this attempt to derive meaning and this attempt to derive self-satisfaction outside of the context, because I guess, you know, what would happen if no one recognized you for your lifting? You know, if, if you're lifting 300 kilos in a basement by yourself, would it be the same hit? And I would argue it wouldn't. It wouldn't actually mm. be as satisfying in that sort of dopamine high where you're just like, oh, yeah, like ding, 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 ding. Here comes the love hearts. But maybe, you know, that's part of the culture that we live in where how we interact with reality, the hyper reality that we see is more real and more vivid than the cold steel in front of us. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think. Do you think yeah, it's had sorry, a, bit of a, a bit, of, bit of an impact on, I guess, the attitude people have towards towards lifting today as it did say, you know, in the early years that when we did it, because I mean, I was not huge on social media back then. Social media at, at the point, at that point was to stay informed with what the powerlifting community was doing. Um, mm. I never video recorded hardly anything I ever did. And my, my desire was purely competitive. Like I wanted to beat everyone in yes. my gym. I wanted to beat everyone in the country. I wanted to just win. And so I guess my desire where I'm getting my, my satisfaction is trying to um, win competition after competition, which driven me to insanity because I did like 13 competitions in three years and, and I broke nearly every freaking joint in my body. And, nice. but I mean, I think that there's, there's a bit of diversion now where it's like, you know, you can get a similar satisfaction and that, you know, dopamine hit every single time through posting a lot of things through social media. So does that, do you think that reduces the drive of wanting of, of being extremely highly competitive or is that making people more dangerous? I think that actually perfectly mirrors my situation. You know, back in 2014, I was considered a reasonably good 110 lifter. Like now it's, you know, even that total, I totaled 855 as a 22 year old, as a 110 um, back in 2014. And I, I remember like not posting videos because I didn't want the guys I was competing against to know what I was lifting. Right, and yeah. I think forward a year later, and I am just spamming that shit. You know what I mean? Like, oh, look at my wanky 320 pause deadlift. So, I think, yeah, that's a really astute observation that you make there, Gus, in that, like, um, the, the, the competitive drive, I think, is being channeled towards the social media and the, the cred points there, rather than, like, the actual nitty-gritty mortal combat of competing against your fellow athlete. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think that's, that's a really, really good observation. I've never sort of thought about that myself, but I could definitely feel a shift in myself, especially as... You know, this is where you layer on being a gym owner on top of that, because so much of your own lifting represents your brand. You know what I mean? So so they, the drive to, to lift more and beat more um, starts becoming tied into your income because you need to lift and win and beat other people and do these lifts so yeah. that therefore people look at you and go, I want to hire that guy as my coach. Um, so, yeah. The, uh, it's interesting you touched on the um, when it knits with 
income because I think that's a large driver. Just to kind of pre-qualify myself on this, I am not on social media for the reason, like at all in my personal life, for the reasons you're listing there because I think it affects, it affected me in all areas of life, not just in terms of um, my lifting. Right, but I was applying it to, and people do apply it to everything to do with their life, what they eat, you know, where the fuck they're going, who they met with. Like, it changes behavior, right? So, I'm mm. completely not on social media, but there, there obviously is a large culture now of there's a, a lot of people getting paid money to lift on social media, right? And mm. they're represented by brands and all this kind of stuff. Another observation is there's a lot of, from what I could tell, there's a lot of lifters who just who don't compete. They don't compete at all. That they're, they're, they're social media lifters. Like it's as if it's as if that they're, they're not really power lifters anymore. Oh, I can think of I can think of a few. Right, and and that yeah. isn't that crazy. That isn't that crazy because the whole reason you started lifting was to, you know, compete. But they're just they're, the views of a post and the likes and stuff is the outcome now. Yeah, yeah, and I think functionally there's there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself in in being like. You know, there's some really strong guys in Australia who don't post and don't compete. I, yeah. I don't think that's necessarily the mortal sin itself. It's I think it it it's when it becomes a choice, it, like when it when it is a choice to sort of lift in a basement, and be super strong, and post heaps of videos, or just yeah. compete and be completely off social media. But I think the behavior patterns are kind of drug addicted in yeah. how those people are interacting. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They, even competing at a high level meet like a big dogs or or pro raw doesn't give them the same hit as their carefully crafted social media posts that they can do inside of their own specific gym setup. You know, you can build up a big meet like a pro raw and work really, really hard towards it and have a bad day. And I think part of the come down crash that can occur to some athletes after that is because not only was there an expected hit of dopamine from the performance, there was an even greater expectation of dopamine mm. from the social media adulation. You know, I'm going to post these videos and Marcus Markopoulos is going to tag me and I'm, my life is going to be changed because I'm going to be one of the cool kids of powerlifting. <laughs> and then you miss that because you go four for nine and you miss two benches and two deadlifts and it's just an absolute horror yeah. show. And the drop, the come down is, is worse than it would have been. It's like, oh, shit, me, you know, next one. It was, it's even worse. You've, you've been expecting this high and you've been denied this high. And it's all to do with things other people control. You know, you, you can't control who likes your videos or who interacts with you. You can control your performance. You can control your sleep. I've, I've said all this before. Yeah. You can control these salient factors to and of yourself. But trying to, you know, it, it, you're constantly, it's like holding water in your hands. You're always going to lose it. The water is always going to drop out of your hands. And yeah, I, I, I'm not one to judge people for how they lift or what they're doing. I think it's more a case of, Hey, what is really internally driving you to tear a fucking peck? <laughs> well, I mean, to, to... and then that's the bit. Like, if, if people if people are one rep max in eight weeks in a row, whatever, and absolutely annihilating themselves just because you know, I know it's going to get me social media feedback. That's obviously mm. a significant issue because you talk about health issues. There, there's a um, something something a little different. There's. Uh, have you ever heard of uh, something I've kind of looked into a little bit recently about dopamine resistance? And mm. um, yeah. so these there's there's these these constant these constant pings, which I mean today is a lot easier to get to get yeah. that satisfaction. 
and that, that starts to build starts to build resistance. So then you end up either digging digging deeper to get it, or you require things that um, give you faster satisfaction rather than something that takes longer to work, like trying to win a competition. Yeah, you know, because mm. you're delaying that desire for a very long periods of time. Where social media is that inst- is quite instant. You can post, you get a like, you're happy. Where you know training absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think think about how much deferral of gratification is involved in a 16 or 20 week prep. Mm. Um, you know, how many things you have to put off social, you know, all these fun things you have to put even even the, the, the gratification of feeling good that day and knowing you could hit a PB, but not because you're saving it for the comp and you're sticking on your program and you're, you know, you're yeah. doing the thing with your coach. So that deferral of gratification cycle is getting worse and worse. And people, you know, it's it's no longer a case of four weeks or three weeks, we're talking about daily, right? That, that yeah. cycle is daily. It's, you know, post, get a high, get, you know, 60 likes, or maybe you only get 30 likes or whatever it is. And then the next day you're back on that train. And, and you know, no one wants to admit this. I love, a lot of people will do the whole, oh, you're just talking shit, or they try to pass it off as flippant, but you can tell by their carefully crafted flippant post on Instagram that they really give a fuck what you think. Yeah, they fucking need it. They really, really care what you think, so much so that they're crafting this whole, oh, I don't care. You do care, mate. You do care. We're social creatures, and we crave that approval, and it permeates every single thing you do. And the only way you can prove me wrong, don't post. Yeah, Yeah. I I think it, it it is an interesting thought experiment to do. I, I've said this about, I think I've said this on every episode of the podcast so far. Is it a PB if it's not on Facebook or Instagram? Like, have you, I, does it exist if you don't put it out there? Yeah. And it would be very interesting as a thought experiment for anybody listening. Can, can you just go a week without and just absolutely crush your program and just leave it hanging? Because I, I can guarantee you'll probably feel a need mm. to post something, right? And at that point, you've got to, and there's nothing wrong with social media. It's just no. how far you go with it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I, um, uh, that's my, I've had some really weird, like health issues and like 35 kilos of unexplained weight gain. And it's, it's been a pretty fun, weird ride for, for me personally. So, um, so training for me is really hit and miss. Like one day it's like, I'm really strong and the next day I'm not. Yeah. And you know, I've managed to pull a, pull a, pull together like a 340 squat, which is like a 10 kilo PB or something. Um, just, just before Proro. And I, the, the intense urge to post that lift was like, man, like I really wanted to post that lift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't actually, I just, I posted it up like two weeks later, once everything had been canceled and Proro had been canceled and, and all the rest of it. And it was such a different feeling in terms of, I was able to come down from the high of my achievement for that day, you know, celebrate with my teammates and mm. have a really good time. And then that was it. I just sort of petered out, went home, had a good sleep. Whereas if I'd posted it that night, come on, we'd all been up to one o'clock, yeah. refreshing that live stream, yeah. waiting for those dings to come in. Okay, and yeah. then you wake up, you're kind of hungover the next day. I actually honestly felt like I had better recovered by not sharing that PB. And we're seeing people literally, like I've seen guys upload openers before their second attempt. Like what the hell? Oh, <laughs> mid, mid comp. Wow. Mid comp, man. Yeah, wow. Mid comp. Yeah, Wow. I, I, I have me, a little though. theory. I have a little theory on that because I kind of experimented myself and this is just a little bit before I was going to, I mean, studying a fair bit on, on dopamine and, and some of its conversion to adrenaline and that uh, if if you were to do a post during a set, right? let's say you, ha- you, hit, you, you hit a heavy lift, like to say working up to a lift, 
then you do your lift, then you posted it. Is there is there still is there still drive because you've already been quite satisfied now? If the dopamine levels are starting to reduce because you've or you're starting to gain resistance to it because you've already getting all your little dings, um, does that start to reduce? Does that start to reduce your aggression? Does that start to reduce your adrenaline? Does that, you know, is that having an effect for the rest of the sets? And then I've kind of in a, I guess in, in a pseudo way, I kind of felt after I posted that set. So this is why I stopped posting during training now. Is that after that set, I felt well. I don't feel like doing the rest of my I'm, I'm done now. rest of my session. I'm done now. <laughs> you know, yeah, okay. you've done you've done your thing. So you know, I've started I've started saying saying or started thinking of saying that if people want to post, only film your last set and post that last, or and, and only only post at the end of your session. Yeah, you know, don't go and start don't go and start filming all your all your sets, or your earlier yeah. sets. I think like in it's it's really apparent like between exercises so like oh, whatever you're, you're doing your low bar uh, uh, working up to a top set of five and then you're going to be doing your safety bar pauses after and i think when the athlete posts after the main exercise and then it just you just they're just tanked after that you know what i mean they, yeah. they're just tanked after that because the likes have started to come in you're checking your phone as you're setting up for the next exercise and i think that's where we get a lot of the I guess, resistance to the exercise, to, to mm. accessory work. Like I think if we're psychologically looking at our lifters and how they're behaving in the gym, and obviously we watch, we watch lifters, what they're doing. You see that there's the, the post big squat social media post. Mm. And then there's the exercises that will disappear. Now I find like if someone's come to the gym for two hours and they're not touching their phone for two hours and they've scheduled themselves to be there for two hours, mm. they're probably just going to be bored and do their accessory work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But instead, they they are easily distracted by the social media in front of them. So, I mean, it's profoundly difficult to illustrate the extent to which this affects behavior patterns, whether it's plate selection on the bar and not doing your assistance exercises, screwing up resting times, <clears throat> dopamine resistance. Like, I, where, does, where do we even draw the line with how profound this impact is? Um, yeah, just absolutely terrifying. It'd be interesting to see where it goes because I mean, obviously everything's transitioned to live now. People are live streaming everything. Right. Um, and I think you're supposed to, you're supposed to be getting, I, I think about like this, you're supposed to be getting your dopamine hit by completing your program. Like it's like when you take a box and a, you know, doing your task list or something, you know, you feel yes. good once you knock off, you knock off your tasks. It's like completing your program. Your dopamine hits should be that I've ticked off all my accessories. I've filled all my programs. I remember it used to drive me nuts if I had, if I missed one fucking rep and it's like, I got to do that whole fucking set again because I got a double instead of a triple or, you know, there's, there's, there's it like it, it, for me, it drew me nuts. I couldn't tick every single box in my program, but it seems yes. now that we're getting our satisfaction from the post instead yes. of the completion of the program. Absolutely. absolutely. I, I was the same. Like I was the same. And I, I remember the shift, the point at which the social media dopamine took over. So I remember 2014, I would be really intensely focused on my program mm. um, and completing every single rep in the belief that, you know, volume is the driver of gains and I'm going to get every single one of these eight sets of eight. And then, you know, it started to slip. I remember it slipping. I think that again, re really astute observations there, Gus, because we, yeah, it, it slowly feeds into you and you're getting the same satisfaction, but like not by performing the work. Mm. Because it, because it looked good, right? Yeah. So you've achieved the thing. Yeah. It, it looked good. It looked as good as I wanted it to look. Therefore. Well, I remember listening to this, this, this professor. So I used to watch a bit of behavioral science lectures and um, he said that 
um, there's there's a lot more drive from the antis- the anticipation of 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 dopamine, so that mm. if we, or the anticipation of that reward. So the dopamine is that anticipation is that you know if we delayed if we continue to delay that let's say say we did not post an entire an entire prep and we waited to that competition, then will we in turn perform better because we have greater sensitivity to to the uptake of 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 dopamine converting dopamine to adrenaline better or mm. or are we uh, is it going to continue to create a higher, more disciplined athlete? Is it going to, you know, is, is, is social media creating lazier athletes? Is, is I mean, I think there's just so many questions you can talk about some here. Stu- yeah. There's some studies there, isn't there? Like it would be interesting to see an A-B test. I don't know how you would do mm. it with where one comp to the next, would an athlete improve their performance just by removing social media from their kind of formula during training and during comp? Mm. I mean, I don't know how you would, well, yeah. For lifters like me and Gus, who sort of have, I guess, a date before social media. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's, I think that's possible. I think for a lot of people coming into it now, they're, everything from their first session at that cool powerlifting gym to their first pro raw has been intrinsically linked to their social media posting. Of course, yeah. So if you remove that, you might actually just remove any drive that person might have to lift. Um, Fuck. Well, that's crazy to think, isn't it? Like, they, they, isn't it? they just wouldn't lift at all if you removed it. They just wouldn't. And personally, I felt that too. Like, I, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I put together training here and there, but I just don't care. I don't care. And um, it's it's not my personal training is not something on the radar right now. Not even for fun. I just don't care. So, trying to motivate that is is difficult. Yeah, is difficult. Yeah. And I, you know, if I got like a you know did like a three fifty for five or something deadlift and posted it and got some of the likes, would that maybe spur on some more of that? attention-seeking behavior, probably, but you're going to always end up back in the same spot. And I think the other thing I wanted to ask you guys is, I think, you know, you've owned a gym, you owned a really successful gym with a very successful powerlifting team. And, you know, how did you personally feel that affected your interaction with social media as you, Gus, the lifter, rather than Gus, the, the gym owner, do you feel that owning the gym sort of instigated worse patterns or better patterns, or it made you behave differently towards social media? Uh, I, I think definitely owning a gym, today, owning a powerlifting gym today, or a strength gym today, than it was back when you first opened up, or Scott mm. first opened up, is 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 is, is very is very different. And it is heavily sh- linked to what kind of athlete you are, regardless of your level of intelligence or wh- whatever makes you a really good good coach. It is still strongly linked to your ability to perform. And yes. but then having that, I think. I think I felt it took away from what I what made me truly good in the past. Where now I'm driven by trying to keep my performance up, to sustain a business, sustain an income, to sustain your image, compared to before where it was just purely competitive. Um, hmm. And I've definitely have made uh, made some discoveries along the way where there are periods there where I absolutely hated training and I never I I, I thought am I am I truly wanted to be in this sport and the thing is I sat on that idea for like two years you know I never actually quit I just plotted along um, doing what I need to do until I decided to take a really 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 long holiday and um, the first thing all I could think of after a few days after about a weekend all I could think about was wanting to train because how good I felt. And realizing that, you know, because I was on holiday, I, I, I'm, I naturally I don't want to be on social media. I'm kind of driven to be on social media because of is because of business. So when I was away mm. on that holiday, you know, I had been off social media completely for quite some time, and all I wanted to do was train. 
And I did. And it, it kind of lit that fuse again for me, knowing that, okay, there are huge external factors impacting the way I think about training and what, what drives me. And since I have closed the gym, I feel like I've regained a lot of my older self. Um, I, my, right now I make, I make, I make enough income to do what I need to do, um, to do what, to, to live. And because I don't have huge overhead expenses and I'm training now cause I fucking love training. Um, and it's very different to what it was before where it's like kind of have to train. Mm, okay. Yes. Mm. Yeah. When it becomes our job. And I think this, um, you know, that, that sort of segues really nicely into, I guess the, the gym ownership topic. Um, and you know, I think, yeah. A lot of a lot of people want to open the gym, and uh, you know, and I'm not gonna. I like I make fun of boomers who make who suck about people um, posting on social media. I want to sort of take a bit of a pot shot at the gym owners who always say opening a gym is so much harder. People have no idea. I don't think anyone thinks opening a gym is easy. Like no one who's actually going to follow through with opening a gym and has the capital resources to open one yeah. is going to think it's easy. Mm. I think they're all aware it's hard, and they've interacted with gym owners who understand that. Um, that owning a gym is hard. I guess in the context of performance gyms in 2020 compared to 2013, um, it is it is a completely indescribably different market to what it was then. And I'll, I'll do it by setting like sorry, I'll try not to ramble too much, but let's take it back to 2008 when Marcos opened the the PTC gym, the first one out of his shed, out of his home gym. At that point, if you had a rack, chalk, and a barbell, and you could use all three of those. There wasn't anything like that, right? You couldn't go into a gym. Yeah. Most gyms didn't, wouldn't even have a squat rack. So you couldn't do this stuff anywhere. So from 2008, I would say, till about 2014, you basically just had to open a shed, put a couple of racks in it, play some metal and chalk, and people would come. Yeah. There, would be, there, would be, there would be something there. And part of that existence would be subsidized by powerlifting competitions. Okay, So for, for, for me, you know, it used to be run a comp, that was one month's rent. So the, the powerlifting competition aspect was really, really critical for some of these gyms coming up online. Mm. So this goes out to anyone who's thinking about opening a gym. So if you open a gym now, it's not like it was in 2013. One, the standard and expectation is much, much higher. You can't have a bunch of mismatched plates. You know, branding needs to be on point. The gym needs to be on point. Yep. It might not need to be a Laco everything, but it's got to be nice and the equipment's got to be good. Okay. And two, the revenue income that you could have generated five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago from powerlifting comps is gone. You, you can't access that, right? Maybe you might be able to run a few little novice comps in your own gym, but the big boys are here and they're not going anywhere. Valhalla Strength has a lockdown on the, the major GPC competitions. We have our GPC competitions in Adelaide, Ruchi's gym, PTC HQ. So you have these nexus points of powerlifting gyms mm. that control that, that and, and that's business, right? Like that is business, but you're not going to have that same access. So your setup costs are going to be higher. Your opportunities to make money are going to be lower. And I always say, you know, I've said this to people before. If I had opened in 2017, as opposed to 2013, I wouldn't have made it. Mm -hmm. I got to open at the right time. Okay. Um, so yeah, so sorry, I'm, I'm really going off the deep end here. So I'll let you guys come in. Interesting. No, they said, um, I remember reading or watching something, something, they try to look at the single number one variable that creates, that created the most successful businesses. And they were talking about big businesses like Uber. And um, they said the number one key variable across across the board that made all these businesses successful that were all similar across the uh, across the board was timing. That they were in the right, they were in the market at the right time where there was a demand that was about to grow or they created yeah. demand. And yes. at that time there were 
like he he's right what he was saying. Like I remember when I first went to PTC Brisbane, I remember the f- the first day we got a monolift and we had the only monolift that was in like Queensland and then there were two. Like there's one there and one in Queensland. It's like cool, we know where to travel to if you want a monolift. Now you can't be a gym unless you have at least two in your gym. Yes. So it, it was like yeah, back then there'll be two in the state. Now this you know you have to have one. You have to have two in your gym. It 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 does. Um, I, I guess if you think of the motivations of people, mo- most people off the street, lifters who their goal is to open a gym, right? They, I mean, if I was to guess, I would say they're doing it because they love to lift and they think, well, I get to be in that environment all the time. I get to be involved and help other lifters and that's great. But there's quite a similar issue with my industry that I, my business is in, which is um, creating content, filmmaking and stuff like that. And it's what I recommend to people is if you love creating videos say if that's what you love to do don't get into business doing it because you number one you'll only be making the videos that your clients want not not you will no longer make the videos you want you won't enjoy it anymore and two you've got to bring the money through the door you and and that pressure takes in the enjoyment out of it and i can imagine it's quite similar in that You've got to cut a check every month. I think I feel some people thought is a natural progression for coaches to own a gym as well. Mm. And that they thought that it was this, that it became, I even hearing some people talk, I've had a good conversation with Scott about this where, you know, he's had a lot of, we've had a lot of people there who all now own gyms. Um, it's kind mm. of similar to your gym. Basically everyone in the industry has gone through PTC Brisbane. Um, and now they're all, you know, having their own gyms, but you know, they all suffer with the same same freaking headaches, but they were trying to go into that to create passive income or to, yeah. or to naturally a natural expansion to coaching. And, you know, I kind of felt that way as well. I was growing quite large and then you thought, okay, I just need to keep growing your coaching. But, you know, I think, I think there are now today uh, better opportunities or better ways to be uh, a better coach. And I think it depends on what direction you want to take. Do you want to create, you want to create what kind of what kind of impact do you want to have on the industry is it like for myself i have now kind of rediscovered what i want to what i want to do and that i want to be i I want to spend time educating myself spending time being better at you know looking after individuals solving individuals problems and being a gym owner prevented me from constant expansion of my own knowledge base um there are many times where there were like good seminars i wanted to go to actually like for example I kind of came across this realization when I was about to close my gym is that there was this workshop I wanted to go to um, that was run by uh, Dr. Stuart McGill. And it was like two and a half grand to go down for a four day, four day workshop. And um, I couldn't afford to go. And I was, I was realizing like, you know what, I'm not actually fulfilling my passion because I love learning, Mm. you know? So because I couldn't go, it's like, you know what, I, this is not, this is not what I want to do. And with so many other things, come come to a lot of realizations like you know what to be to constantly grow with my business doesn't necessarily mean i just need more and more clients need more and more members it just means i you know can specialize more in the areas i'm interested in yes yeah absolutely and i i certainly feel that you know with with um you know the development of ironworks and, and stuff like that like these sort of different ventures hey like what am i really really passionate about i i, I think that's that's so true. And I think the other thing you, you touched on there was this expectation that after you sort of reach a critical or a certain mass, you should go and open up your own gym. And I think this brings it back to, so if you're hundred percent, this goes out to the people listening to this who are hundred percent set on opening their gym. I think you need to really, really understand 
the fundamental business aspects of what you actually are as a business. If you're like me or you're like Gus, right? The gym is not the product. You are the products. Okay. The coach is the product. Mm. Very few powerlifting gyms have gotten to the point where the gym itself is the product. We are functionally Besser brick warehouses with six fans and a lot of fat dudes. There's nothing fancy about that. And it's certainly nothing that's going to command anywhere from 30 to $70 a week in gym memberships. So you are the product. You are what is being sold. That is the thing to remember at all times. You are what is in display and what people are coming to. Mm. When gyms transition from the point where they are no longer personality dependent and they become actual functional gym entities as a product in and of themselves is a quantum leap in terms of scale, size, operations. Now, there's a couple of gyms that have done this in Australia. You can let me know if I've missed any of them, Gus, but Ruchi's gym, right? So you have Ruchi's coaching and the Ruchi's have had great success as personal coaches themselves with lots of athletes at the highest level of powerlifting. But at the same time, Ruchi's gym in and of itself is a gym, right? It Mm. is its own product. People might not necessarily go there to get coached by the Ruchi boys, but just to have this access to this amazing facility. Another one is Valhalla, uh, the former PTC Brisbane. Um, it's in that same situation now where you can have multiple different operators operating their own businesses out of it. It's it, The scale of it is so big that the product itself becomes the gym. So if you're going to go into this uh, gym ownership, right, I think stick to something that's about 100 square meters, maybe less. Stick to the essentials that you need and work through that and then expand once you're bursting at the seams in terms of your membership basis. Yeah. Don't go ahead and, and go into a 400 square meter space with four monoliths and a Leica, everything, because you don't have the same opportunities a lot of us earlier gyms did in terms of capital that we can raise from previous reputation, competitions, and all the rest of it. So it's either it's either one of these two. The mid-gym is, is as a concept dead. So and I think, Gus, your gym was a perfect example of that, where it's 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 the overheads are too high to just be a personal gym, mm-hmm. but the scale is too small to be a giant powerlifting performance facility. And you're sort of stuck in this midpoint where you, you, you know, the, the overheads are really high, but it's all you, right? You're doing 90% of the coaching. Everything is coming through you. So you can't sort of externalize some of those other burdens onto staff or other people. And it's, it's a really tough, tough position to be in. And it's, it's so easy to, to, to fall into that. Um, so yeah, so either pick, you're going to do your own thing in a small, uh, small environment. I think, um, Josh Tate is a really, really good example of that. What's his gym called? What's it's is now it it's called now? evolved now. Yeah. Well, jo- Josh was such a perfect example of that because you saw he had one monolift, a bunch of calibrated plates, bench, you know, it was simple, small, affordable. He took the bites he could, and now he's expanded into a bigger space. I mean, I think Josh Tate did that textbook perfect and you know, he's, he's absolutely killing it as, as a result. So that's yeah my that's definitely that's definitely my advice as well too yeah i was i was stuck in the middle and so um i was thinking of multiple directions to take that i had to either systemize in a way that i could you know sell a product which i did we end up changing into um we end up splitting into a training studio so we end up hiring coaches that would take on clients and because you can make more money per person um, doing one-on-one coaching that I, you know, I use, I trained my, I trained my coaches up to train my system to multiple people in a personal, in a personal, personal setting. Um, and that, that did, that did work for some time. Um, however, I do agree what you do, what you say is that I think if people want to take this up is that people are best taking this up within what they can afford in a, in a, in a small gym where you can train your people first. And that should be the goal. Can you, 
train your, you know, 40, 50, 60 clients in your small scale gym with a few, with, with just a small bit of equipment and come out, come out with a profit with the minimum you need. You know, you need, you need, you need a rack, you need a bench, you need bars and, you know, and because coaches, people are seeing coaches with very particular, particular traits, I guess, methods or systems, then you can design your little small scale gym based off what your, your little tiny niches in that market. Um, and only, yes, only grow with until you are absolutely busting in the seams. I think it's also the same, I guess, I guess, I guess some of the problems I had is that, and I've learned to calm down a lot, but my extreme competitiveness to wanting to be, wanted to be, wanted to be big where my ego got in the way to, to try to grow this gym massively. So I was, I was growing, trying to grow faster than what I, than what I was actually capable of doing where I should have been a lot smaller. So I was busting out of the seams and then grow from, grow from there. Um, so definitely a, Big, very expensive life lesson. It, it is so interesting because what, what you two are talking about, those pitfalls are the same for any business. I mean, there's a lot of businesses that have gone out of business because they have a kind of a windfall and they get a lot of momentum. They spend a shitload of money on the ping pong table and the, fucking, the big office and the fucking barista and stuff. And then those monthly costs hit you as soon as you kind of get a downturn. And the other thing I want to talk to you about what I'm interested to know about is how fickle your customer base can be. Because from, from what I can tell, people tend to be quite jumpy with the brands now. And people tend to be kind of driven towards the cool brand to be a part of at the time, right? They want to be associated with a certain person, a certain team, a certain brand. And from what I can tell, that changes quite regularly. So what did you experience in terms of, or what do you experience in terms of turnover of customers? Yeah, you know, so for me, like, you know, uh, when I was having my weird health issues and I wasn't really posting anything, you know, I saw a pretty big downturn in 2016, 2017 as right. a result of, you know, suddenly the Fuzzies brand, we do the Fuzzies brand was pretty, you know, big, big time in 2014, 2015. And right. you know, I'd make snarky Facebook posts because I was such a cool kid. Um, you know, that lost stock value. Right. Um, and as a result, people sort of shift. And I think, I think that's only natural, but I think this comes back funnily enough to this ties it in nicely as far as the, the social media stuff, because I think people will literally choose coaches based on social media clout. Yeah. So, you know, I tended to not really, you know, shout out my clients. Oh my God, my totes client loves having donuts and deadlifts. With her. <laughs> you know, the type. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I tended to not be that like, yeah, kind of handsy coach. Um, and I think people are so craving that like public acknowledgement of mm. them that they will go to a coach who will give that that and then rock up 12 weeks later at my gym for a comp with a 60 kilo less total. <laughs> so numbers don't lie. The numbers don't lie. You know what I mean? So, you know, my, nothing changed about my programming. My programming was you know as good as it's ever been and it's continued to improve and all the rest of it. But I, I couldn't provide the associated claps, the social media clap that this person was looking at. And you know what? For them, a 60 kilo drop on total is fine. If they get that post saying, oh my God, you did so good. I'm so right. proud of you. Next comp here it is. They'll, they'll exchange that. That's an exchange to them that they'll make. You feel it's gotten quite, um, sometimes kind of, kind of quite nasty on social media where it's like, cause I, I, I'm relating to what exactly what you're saying. Um, where there's always a, you know, a flavor for that year and, you know, yeah. there's a lot of client, a lot of, a lot of client, a lot of client hopping. And it, it does seem to be, you know, an observer from the outside looking, looking in, it's like, you know, there's nothing offering any greater than I guess what I'm offering, but they're a lot more colorful, a lot more, 
out there. So oh, a lot more popular, mm. like you said, a lot more, lot more, lot more claps mm. on social media. Yeah. So who's who's um, who's your best athlete, Sarah? Yes. Would, would you say Sarah's the, your best lifter? Yes. How long have you had her for? Six years. Five, five years, six years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Perfect. So this is a good point. This is a good point yeah, to yeah. make. Yeah. 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 So my best athlete I've had for five, Ben mm. Smith. Okay. And so I got Ben with like, I don't know, like a 200 squat, 230 pole, you know, 120 bench. And now uh, as he was coming into pro right at the eighties, he, um, he squatted 300, uh, benched 160 something and uh, he's pulled 300 now. Okay. So I've had him from five years, not, not advised him. Not, I've, I've coached this kid for four or five years, whatever it's been since I first met him at uni. And so the, the proof is in the pudding in terms of that athlete development. So the mark for you as a coach and the relationships you build with your clients is that longevity. Shaco, Louis Simmons, you know, these guys don't agree on a lot of things as far as programming goes. Okay. Mm -hmm. But what do they have? They've got guys who've been with them for 20, 25, 30, 35 years. Right. And that is the mark of the coach who is going to really do some crazy shit in this sport. So you, you, you can chart it up six years, five years, three years, four years. That illustrates the depth of what it is that you're doing more than anything, more than the amount of money you make, the likes you get, the cash that comes through the business. Mm -hmm. The clout, whether you're the cool kid for the month with your system this or system that or method this, um, that's what is going to fundamentally set you apart, whether you can build those relationships. You know, I know so many coaches who've never held on to a client for more than a year. I know so many athletes who've never stayed with a coach for more than a year. Mm. That's what you should be looking at. What are these guys doing that makes them, you know, keep a coach for that long? And with someone like us, you know, relentless self-learning. Um, and self-improvement, you know, uh, with me, I, I love to tinker around with programs and design or whatever it is. That's the difference between, you know, the transient coaches and the ones who are going to be here in 20 years. Yeah. So that, that, I mean, the key that the key there for me is also, I think what you're touching on is the, the instant gratification that people need now with everything. And this is linked to the social media. Whereas, I mean, how long on average do you I think? think even, it, yeah, like, are you saying like, like the instant results from a coach? Because I go to this coach and it's like, right, get they, get, they, get, they get that in six weeks, I um, improved my bench by X instead of thinking, you know what? The key to being a better athlete is I need to stick with this long term to see anything actually happen. And, and I think they're forgetting to see where someone likes, someone, someone likes Sarah. It's like the amount of, um, I guess, how much of the training is just boring at um, slow paced training where it's not her, her big, her big times are very, yeah. very short lived periods, you know? And, um, it's all the, uh, all the little, it's all the, it's all the little things that her consistency throughout the entire, entire year, you know, eating, making sure she eats in three or four times a day, <laughs> make sure she's going to sleep all the time. And it's all the boring things and, and knowing that her strength isn't always going to be linear. So we plan, competition so we know we can have long we can have long rest periods we know when how long it's going to take to adapt to something over over especially someone as strong as her she ain't going to get pb's competition to competition so you know it's this it's this you know what the reality is and what people want it's definitely skewed yeah a lot because i mean a lot of people have seen a lot of strong people now and not realizing that these people have put in yeah many 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 years and there are many no many tiresome cuts. hours and there are no shortcuts, right? I mean, that, that's always, we, we, we had Sarah on this podcast and oh, there you go. The, the, the overwhelming sense I got was that training's not, unless I'm benching, training is not fun for me. And she hates having to smash the calories. And she said, she said at one point she was eating 5,500 a day. Is that right? Yeah. And it's like, it, it wasn't an enjoyable experience. 
But yeah. she's been doing it consistently for so long now. That's how you become elite, right? And then all, the, all these people who think, if I just jump to the next coach, to the next coach, and the key is to ignore the likes, ignore the clout, and go scale back to the numbers, right? And just do it long term. Yeah. I think the one, I think, I think, you go. No, you go, Gus. I talk too much. <laughs> I think you, I think you notice what, um, what what a, what a coach wants because you know after being a coach for so long I I, I get coaching from someone from someone else now, mm. and I know that they will need to spend at least you know a good year two or more with me. Um, they know results. We know we've got to take periods of off time and periods of in, in competition because they need to learn a lot about me and how I'm responding mm. to training. And um, I think this is this is what I think a lot of people aren't aren't understanding, and it could be because of you know linked back to social media. Of being yeah uh, you know for sure and i think uh, uh, just again like trying to just tie it all together i think one other thing that um I, I feel a lot of people will do is be like i have to be on social media to grow my business or yeah. you know and i think the question is if you actually just took if you just took the time you need to post your clients post some content and do that stuff i think you can achieve that all within an hour yeah and then you can put your phone down yeah yeah so, you know, if your screen time on Instagram is six hours a day, that's, you're not doing it. What, what could you do with that other five hours? And I'm not saying I'm perfect at this either, mm. but the gym shut down, things slowed down for me. I started a completely new business with, with, with what I feel is the best power rack in Australia. Um, you know, it, it, it drove me to, to kick off something new and to spend my time thinking, to spend my time thinking about that. So, yeah. So, you know, and the other thing is with, with athletes, a lot of the time when you go to a new coach, you might work a little harder. Maybe that's where the results came from. Yeah. Maybe the results came from because the, the coach, previous coach had set you up, had set that athlete up really well before they went to that new coach. Mm. You know what I mean? Get, getting people stronger isn't hard, provided they're motivated. Like um, with the exception of peaking, peaking an athlete is only the only thing that I think is a real art form as far as powerlifting coaching goes. But getting, improving someone's general strength is, it's not difficult, right? Provided they want to do it. So if they move to a new coach and they're a bit more motivated because they want the dopamine from the likes because of the new clout, mm. yeah, maybe they are going to train a bit harder. Who knows? Who knows? I definitely feel that a little bit because I think sometimes you feel that uh, your your clients sometimes get a little bit complacent with you. So you try and implement an older yes. strategy where you know that works. It's like, okay, cool. I need you to start tracking, start tracking this. So you have to do a little bit more work now. And uh, they don't because it's – been done before, you know, I'm a bit complacent with you. But if you've got a new 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 coach, you've got to prove yourself to that new coach. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because you don't want the new coach thinking, oh, maybe you didn't make any progress with the old coaches because you're a little bitch. Yeah. So, yeah. So, what what um, I started doing is started making a a bigger – I've started making a bigger deal about transitioning to phases. So when we go into mm. a competition, we say, okay, cool, we're about to go into competition prep now. So you need to you need to you need to spend the next two weeks now during this transitional phase that you need to start to make these changes mentally and um, um, and start to make some of these changes in your lifestyle to put in the next eight to twelve or so weeks. And so that's how I found to create get out of get people out of the um, complacency a bit. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. I might just have to take that on board. I think that's a really really good one. Um, so yeah, anything else, fellas? Oh, that was a great chat. <laughs> That's great. That was great. We've, great we've, we've literally just come up on an hour. Um, there you go. so we probably should tie it off. Not say, I know you could probably talk for a few hours on this. I know Gus could. I know Gus could. Yeah. Mm. But, um, yeah. we'll tie it off there. So Fuzzy, it's been awesome, mate. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. 
gentlemen, thank you. I've, it's been absolutely delightful. And, and I hope anyone listening to this, especially, you know, if you are struggling with social media or um, wanting to open a gym or a combination thereof, um, that this, this podcast helps you because you can put yourself through a lot of mental anguish in this game and you don't need to do it. And you can always reach out to, to talk to someone about it. And I'm, I'm coming straight off this podcast and I'm checking out your power rack. Has he sold yeah. it? Has he sold it? We'll see. That's it. That's it. <laughs> All right, no, mate, awesome. Thank you so All much. Right, thank right. you. Bye. Cool. Bye-bye.